You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seats and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. The airlock has been closed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. So... This is this is a sort of unusual situation we find ourselves in, in the functional nerdverse. And uh, listeners who have been at the show for a while know that while Patrick and I have a lot in common with each other and we have our like bouncy, bouncy chemistry and stuff, that we don't have a, necessarily a lot of overlap in the things that we've read and the shows that we've watched because I am a television illiterate and bad at TV and all these sorts of things. And this is one of those episodes where the the kind of driving heart and pulsing force behind it it's getting weird as i'm saying these things would 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 be patrick because patrick this is a wish list bucket list author guest for you we have kate elliott hi is this where i say hi sure yes. hi. you can say hi at any point oh. you want and oh, okay. yield because you're kate elliott and so every everybody's got their list of favorites and because i do the bookings we tend to sort of yield in the direction of me and we've had some very me episodes in the recent past but but we have Kate Elliott now, and moreover, we have new Kate Elliott coming in January. It's uh, The Keeper 6 from Tor.com. So congratulations on, on your new release coming up. Thank you so much. Okay, so set the scene. Take us there. What's, what's The Keeper 6? You know, I'm known, I believe, mostly for rather long Heavily world-built, secondary world fantasy and Big old also guys. space yeah. opera, which is usually set... The space opera is often linked to Earth, but it's set far enough in the future that it's really, I consider that kind of fantastical anyway. And so this book is short. It's originally, I attempted to write it as a novella, but it ended up about 55,000 words. So it's a very short novel or a very long novella. And most notably, it is the first contemporary fantasy I've ever written. So it is set in this world in you know, the modern day, I don't specify mm -hmm. a year. It's set on Oahu. So in mm -hmm. Hawaii, although it's not about Oahu, or it's not about Hawaii. Um, it is, of course, a portal fantasy with a multiverse, and there's much more going on. But what I find interesting is that I was able to ground it where I live. And I didn't have to do, there was so much world building I didn't have to do because of the assumption that people would know what a car was and people would know what a house was. And I didn't have to explain those things to people. So in that sense, it was unusual. There was a lot of world building I didn't have to do because I just assumed that readers would be able to figure out a lot of what was going on. And that's different for me. So it created this whole new thing for me to do, a, a new challenge in a way. That's awesome. I, I've learned, it, it, actually, I, I know a lot about Hawaii based on uh, Hawaii Five-O reboot. Oh, I'm so sorry <laughs> yes, yes, because they really, yeah, 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 let me, yeah. Anyway, don't, do you want me to start down that road? I didn't, I didn't watch it. I think I saw like one or two um, episodes of the mm. first season and just my eyes rolled out of my head. But yeah, and I mean, I'm not even, I'm not, I wasn't even born here. I've just been living here for 20 years. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's a show made for the mainland. 
Yeah. It's not this, so, yeah. so, so, so yeah. when, when that went away, when, when that went away, they didn't want to give up uh, the, like the production facilities and stuff. So they said, Hey, what if we did an NCIS show here? Oh, that's right. And now we have I, NCIS Hawaii. I, I have never seen it. I don't know anything about it, except I've, I've noticed that it happened and I was like, what? But I didn't realize. So that makes sense, though. They had all the sets and stuff, so they could yeah. just keep on. Yeah, they tend to do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How interesting. Well, for one me, of the things I spe- <laughs> one of the things I specifically did with um, the Keeper Six was I wrote it from the perspective of someone who lives in Hawaii, not for the perspective of someone who's being shown Hawaii as an exotified place. Um, But the funniest thing was that there were a couple of things I had to define. So in Hawaii, we say, I'm going to go sit on my lanai. And I have a reference to a lanai. And my editor said, what is a lanai? And and I said, well, it's a porch, kind of. I mean, it's more Mm -hmm. complicated than that. And he goes, well, can't you just call it a porch? And I'm like, and I, I thought to myself, no, I can't just call it a porch. Because right. no one who lives here would say, I'm would going do out that. on yeah. the porch, unless they were yeah. from the mainland. I mean, you know, or military family. I, I don't say that in any derogatory way. I mean, just that's how it is. So I had to figure out a way to slide the definition in. Um, and But I wanted specifically to make it seem like a place that was how people ex- might experience it who lived there rather than explaining yeah. things. Yeah. 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 My agent is fond of of talking about um, world building, the world building that she prefers when she's looking at manuscripts from her, from her own clients or things that she's considering signing, that she prefers world building that feels lived in. And it's really kind of code for it's a world that the characters living in that world already understand and yeah. whatever explanations exist feel organic and non-intrusive. And so it's a sort of unusual position to find yourself in to, to say, I am writing a real place that exists, but it is sufficiently unfamiliar to enough of my readers that I have to somehow still treat it as a world building exercise without making my character alienated from her own relationship to the place she's living in. That's a really good point because the other element of Hawaii is that it is so often exotified for tourists, for readers, for mm-hmm. people who are, you the know, spirit of a film thing. set in. Yeah. And the, the things that are, and, and so you are also playing against those expectations, right? Mm-hmm. So sure, I could have written, you know, uh, tourists comes to Hawaii and then things happen to them and then they experience the culture as a complete, you know, and as an outsider, but that doesn't help, isn't how the story functions. Um, so you have to manage those expectations as well. It's actually it reminds me. Uh, this is long, long ago when I wrote my first like big epic fantasy series, Crown of Stars. The first volume. So it's 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 set in a alternate, very very alternate Europe style um, setting, mm-hmm. and it's set in the early Middle Ages rather than the later Middle Ages. This So King's Dragon, which is the first volume, came out about the same time that Amazon got started. And so they first had those reviews, which were like the the worst and the best thing for writers, um, (laughs) because you had a chance to see reader reviews and then 
but it also meant you had a chance to see reader reviews. So that was like good and bad, right? <laughs> um, but I just remember, I, I, and I did a lot of research for this, and I remember seeing a review in which the reader complained that I clearly hadn't done any research because the armies were too small. You know, the Romans, they marched out with, you know, 10,000 people in a, or whatever they thought was realistic in a legion or whatever. And then I had armies that were only like a thousand people where two kings were fighting. Well, the reader was wrong. I was right. But the reader had brought those expectations to yeah. it. And so in that reader's mind, I had done something wrong. And the only way I could have gotten around that was by sticking in a one-page essay about the early yeah. Middle Ages. And obviously, I wasn't going to do that. So sometimes you end up just having to live with people bringing their expectations to what you're writing. And theirs are based maybe not on real history or not on lived experience, but on what they saw in some TV yeah, you're fighting or... against MGM Spartacus and Ben Hur and stuff, and right, you know right. what can one do? Or just the knowledge that they that the early Middle Ages wasn't the same as the Roman Empire, you know? Right. Yeah, they, yeah, just a lack of. Sometimes it's just a lack of understanding about history, but also these stereotypes that get stuck. There, there's, there's. What's funny is the the word that you used for porch is again lanai, lanai. So, so. If if you're if you're writing from the viewpoint of the local, the local's going to know that, right? But mm -hmm. you're always going to have. If you didn't use that word, if you just called it a porch, the local reading that's going to go, well, this is inaccurate. Yeah, right. That that that's the double edged sword yeah. that you run there. It's like you want to use the word, but then you don't. The um, I've talked about it before when when I I finally got a book published, I my editor and I argued constantly because my book is set in Denver. And Denver and Colorado in general has a big uh, green chili following. Everything here is green chili, right? And uh, so there's green chili when you go to uh, get breakfast. The breakfast burritos have green chili in them. There's green chili burritos. There's all this stuff. And it's spelled a specific way. And I kept spelling it that way. And the editor kept changing it to C-H-I-L-I, -I, chili. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, it's C-H-I-L-E, chili. No, no, it's not. And we just kept arguing back and forth because the editor's like, no one's going to believe it. This is not the way it's spelled. I'm like, but it is here. That's yeah. how it's done here. Yeah. And this is a local person here. And yeah. if if you didn't do it that way, then anyone reading it would go, this person's never been to Denver. Yeah. They have no yeah. idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Like somebody, somebody told me this story about, you know, Oregon is, I believe now, the only state in the U.S. where by law it's required that at the gas station an they attendant pump. put the gas in. And yeah. this is some years ago when um, someone had is written Oregon a or story. Washington? It's Oregon. And it I know this. For, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I grew up in Oregon. Um, and someone wrote a story with a with like a PI, supernatural mystery, kind of urban fantasy kind of thing. And at one point they go into a gas station, hop out and put gas in their car. And everyone's like, Anyone in Oregon would be like, oh, yeah. no, right? Yeah. And But I think, see, I, I did you get it spelled the way you want it? Yes. yes. Good. Because I think you have to take that, I don't want to say that hit, because it's not a hit. <laughs> um, and I get what the editor is think, saying, but that's like saying everyone has to, I, I don't know what it's saying. It's like, 
either either places have specificity or they don't. Yeah. And once yeah. they don't, then everything is just kind of this bland mush. Yes. Fantasy yeah, becomes it, a place where people eat stew and, and that yes. becomes, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like writing a, writing a Southern character who's in the South and, and, and this, this character saying over in the Valley, we've got X, Y, Z happening. Well, no, they're going to say over in the holler. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say Valley. I wouldn't even set a story <laughs> in the South written from the point of view of a local, because I wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, and in that sense, you're playing to your strengths with Keeper Six. And I guess I, it, this is, this is a 100% selfish question. So I'm going to own that as I go into it. So I, I want to point out to the listeners here, because this has one of the best taglines of any book I've seen in, in like a hot minute, a story of portals, dragon Kings, surprising literature, and one furious mom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so as, as a mom who is from time to time furious at a variety of entities, including the spawn of my body, um, I, I'm really interested in the mom adventure angle here do you mind if i do do we mind if i usurp the podcast to talk mom adventure not not at all so i um i i also have spawn three spawn and and that's actually the word i use um and they find it hysterical um they're all adults though and one of the things i wanted to do was write about and older woman who has seen some shit, right? And who's raised her initiative. Esther has two children in, in the story. And they're adults now. And the thing about, one of the interesting things about the parental relationship is it lasts the whole time. It's, it's, it's always, it's always. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad passed away in 2013 and we, I was very close with him. And I still have a relationship with him because I'll think, oh, what would dad tell me? Right. And that's still a relationship. And, and in this case, I wanted to show an older woman who, you know, got up and did something and didn't say, oh, someone else go do that for me. And I wanted to show the relationship of a parent with their adult children, because that relationship continues and it changes. And the fact that it, it does that continues and changes is one of the great delights of, of it. So, yeah. And also, I think Furious moms are one of the great forces in, you know, human survival. It's Can you funny get a lot because with the someone, yeah, someone was uh, someone was posting something on Facebook, and I replied with the story of my mom <laughs> when I, I played little league baseball, and they were talking about like moms embarrassing their kids in in settings of some sort, uh, and I still remember I I I had uh, I was playing baseball. It was little league. And they had they had cones marking if you it, the essentially it's a big baseball field, but we're little kids, so they have cones out in the field. And this is the, the home run goes, zone. Yeah, if the ball goes past the cone, it's a home run. Right. And I hit a ball past the cone, and the kid ran out past the cone and caught it, and they called it out. And my mom and every other parent came flying off the bleachers onto the field (laughs) and they all got ejected from the game. Now the problem is ejected from the game means now they're, you know, 25 feet that way in the parking lot. (laughs) Right. It's not really, (laughs) they're not really that far away, but they're still there. And I just remember like, everybody's going, wow, your mom really got it. Yeah, I know. I know. 
Yeah, that's my mom. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. And that's a that's a furious yeah. mom story. Yeah, she that was is pissed. a furious mom story. Yeah, and I and I wanted to show, you know, there's so many different ways to write about parenting and family, and sometimes mm-hmm. stories are about found family and you know people who people who have maybe bad relationships with their birth family or rocky relationships. Um, Sometimes it's about coming to terms with the family or getting to know each other. Sometimes it's coming to terms with the idea that you kind of have to leave them behind, that there's no way to repair that. And and in this case, I wanted to write one about uh, a mother and children who have uh, still a good relationship and what is to me a a realistic one where they joke with each other and maybe they have some disagreements and um, just that, 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 that relationship has just grown and developed. And that when, and this happens on the first page of the book, so it's not a spoiler when that son Mm -hmm. suddenly vanishes, she's not going to let anything stop her from finding out. Um, what happened to him because she has the tools to do it with her small group, with this small group of people who are also trained to do what she does, which is move through this portal into the multiverse. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, I think so important to the opportunity this, the book presents that it is an adult child with their, their elder parent, so to speak, because that, I don't know that anybody has figured out how to negotiate what it means to be both an adult and still someone's child at the same time, or that any parent has sort of figured out for themselves, like, how do I, how do I parent someone who doesn't need parenting per se anymore? Like, what does that look like? Like, what is my, what does a healthy relationship with this person look like? And, and in a lot of ways, you mentioned all the different sort of fraught relationships we're used to seeing in genre fiction, but I'm really interested in how you can still get a lot of drama out of a healthy relationship just because it's a complicated thing for time to evolve you as a sort of family unit. And, And it keeps going. I mean, one of the things about families is because it goes day by day, month by month, year by year, each family is going to evolve itself in, in some way that it, that goes together. I, I was just in, um, on the big Island just this past week for a couple of days, visiting my sister-in-law, who's the younger sister of my ex. Well, I've known her for 40 years. So we still have a great relationship, right? Regardless of whatever happened with the marriage. And that's also family. I mean, there's so many complicated ways that family happen. Um, And I got to see my niece, who I haven't seen in a couple (laughs) of years, which was great um, also. But family happens in such complicated ways. And I always want fantasy and science fiction to do more with fantasy and not just birth family, but found family, because Mm -hmm. I, I I get why I don't see this as much. The, I don't see the orphan as much Mm. now as perhaps in the past, but this idea that someone can go out in the world with no regard to their relationships, they may have left behind to the relationships they may have Mm -hmm. the idea that you are linked to people, that those people could help you or impede you. There's just so much going on with family relationships 
And yeah. I always want to see more about that because it's mm -hmm. almost too, I get why sometimes we need an orphan who needs to create a new place for themselves in the world, but it's also a way to not have to deal with those relationships because they do complicate things. You know, it's funny, I, I mentioned, as the listeners well know, anybody who's listened to this this podcast very much, there's a standing joke because it's 100% true that I'm bad at TV, um, by which I mean, like, I'm just perpetually behind all of the zeitgeist when it comes to television. Yeah. But I, I have watched up to the current present in Stranger Things. And I, I do think Stranger Things is an interesting genre outlier in that it expressly does want to look at how do it in a multi-generational way. How are these characters handling this profound and dangerous weirdness that's literally absorbed the town they call home? Um, and I think that it's it's interesting because within that, we see not only their different strategies for dealing with like action horror stuff, but also just how in the context of the things that they're experiencing, they also have to negotiate the relationships with each other, the risks that they're willing to take, the risks they're willing to see each other take where they impede each other, where they help each other. Um, and all that is just negotiated through the idea of family, just like you were talking about. Yeah. And if you just want to write battles and movement, like I've got to get to point A and point B, then yes, it is complicating. It's And it does, I don't want to say it slows down the story because stories can be negotiated in different ways. If I just had like one action scene after the next one car chase after the next that personally for me as a reader and viewer doesn't really interest me I lose interest if I can't connect with the characters and if the world is flat but but it's also used like oh wait you know the what about the what about her brother I forgot I haven't written anything the brother's with her but I haven't written anything about him in two scenes or two chapters so, oh I got to go back and fit him in and what is he doing right now you've got to think about a lot of things that don't seem to fit the main plot but if you do to me if you do family right the family is in its way part of the main plot mm -hmm. so there's just it's it's just a lot to to juggle. And I like it. I Well, I love any story about family, found family, birth family, any complicating. Well, not any. I don't, I'm not into the really rich people fighting over the money story. That doesn't interest <laughs> me. But um, beyond that, yeah. I'm thinking of, um, so I, I, I'm a teacher and uh, sometimes I end up in, in a course where I end up teaching Frankenstein. And one of my absolute favorite moments in teaching a Frankenstein is the literally inevitable moment where someone, as we reach the end of the novel, goes, what happened to Ernest? Um, and then so, to catch everybody up here, um, this is usually not in, in movie treatments of Frankenstein observed in any way, shape or form. So Mary Shelley in Frankenstein, you have Victor Frankenstein. He has his family and there's Elizabeth Lavenza, who is his, his cousin slash wife to be, um, which is weird, but you know. Whatever it was, the, it was the time. Um, it was the time. Yeah, it is. You know, no one's doing their punnet squares at this point. So, anyway, <laughs> there's that, and he's got like his little brother William, and then we've got uh, the middle brother Ernest, and then there's him. He's the oldest kid, um, and then there's his dad. And then, of course, in the course of things going bonkers with the monster, the monster lashes out at victor's family and ultimately william is dead and eventually elizabeth is dead and don't complain to me about spoilers it was literally published in 1818 um <laughs> you can get over it um but 
one of the things about it is that there's Ernest and then there's just no mention of Ernest ever again. And just as you were saying that family introduces this complicating factor, even in a narrative where Mary Shelley herself knew like, you know what? I need the family to be the point of vulnerability. I need to be the family to be a place that Victor can be hurt and people can be punished for what Victor has done or not done. She's like, bloop, forgot Ernest. I guess he just like left town and he's good. Now he's not in Geneva anymore. Apparently well, they, they actually, they handled that uh, in the, late eighties and nineties. They mm-hmm. did a series of films about him where he goes to camp. He goes, Oh, that's to true. Yeah, he does. Uh, he has his friend like, burn. Yeah. He's got yeah. burn. Yeah. So yeah. Ernest, Ernest got his, got his due there with the Jim. Wait, Barney. wait, is this a joke? Or are you serious? Yes. No, I'm no, I'm it's a total joke. Jim Barney's is, character, Ernest. Although I loved the evolution of your expression. As you <laughs> I, know, I was, going like, I was not. going like, and then I'm like, is this Ernie and Bert? Wait, what? No, no. you know what I mean? You know what I mean, Bert? You know what I mean, Bert? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, that not okay. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know what that is, yeah. but I've never seen it. Yeah. No, Kate's she too started smart out, for this sort of stuff. Started out in commercials <laughs> and then uh, grew into doing a bunch of movies and then became Jed Clampett in the Beverly Hillbillies uh, reboot movie. It was really but, the apotheosis of um, that whole acting career. But yeah. I like it as an idea, though. i can't believe someone hasn't done a you know we're doing the retelling of frankenstein only from the point of view of the missing brother like where is he what's his deal did he go like full parasite and now he's living in the bomb shelter in the basement like what's happening i'm just thinking there was a movie it was uh rosencrantz and gildenstern rosencrantz Mm -hmm. and gildenstern are dead it's based off of a tom stoppard play yeah yeah and it was like a comedy and yeah, it's yeah. it's 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 Hamlet from the perspective of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, yeah. who are like yeah. so utterly forgettable that the characters, yeah. the other characters in the play themselves, can't keep straight which one is which. Yeah, the there was also in Shakespeare. I mean, just just throw it out there. There was also a uh, a very popular comic from Dark Horse mm-hmm. that uh, followed the lives of two stormtroopers who are just happen oh. to like be everywhere and see all the stuff. And, oh, but for, they always manage to like, right. Yeah. But they always manage to escape. Uh, what, um, JB Jones, you remember JB Jones? I haven't seen anything I, from JB Jones. I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, had the two guard characters that were like sprinkled throughout the books and like the two guard characters who always got everything wrong. Like the one, one, it was like, it was like dominant and submissive. And the dominant guy was just really stupid and he never got anything right. He was always telling the other guy all the bad stuff, like all the wrong stuff. And and they were sprinkled throughout. So I, I'm just – now my brain's going through all these different Squirrel. Uh, characters and Squirrel. stuff. Squirrel. Yeah. yeah, Squirrel. <laughs> I, I, I imagine that I'm sure Mary got at least one letter that said, but what happened to Ernest? <laughs> and then she was like, oh, oh. damn, 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 I forgot about him. We've all gotten those mm-hmm. letters, right? You know, but yeah. what about X? And I'm like – I knew I forgot something. Yeah, yeah. That's it's like really kind of hard to retcon that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Tracy, I haven't I haven't brought it up in in probably at least a month, but uh, uh, I was actually traumatized by uh, the Crown of Stars, uh, <laughs> and I and I have mentioned this actually to Kate a very very long time ago, but uh, it was one of the first books. Uh, Tad Williams was the other dirty bastard doing this shit to me but uh where i'm reading a book and the characters are making such bad horrible decisions that i'm actually yelling at the books going what are you doing Uh don't do that no don't do that stop why why are you making these bad decisions don't you know i mean that's actually a great 
thing to to think about for a second because you do as a as an author you need your characters to make some mistakes because they have to complicate their own lives they have to run into difficulties and sometimes those difficulties are of their own making but you don't want the reader to feel that they're being stupid or that they're making a mistake to satisfy plot right like you you could you, they can look at the decision and be like oh that's such a stupid decision please don't do this please don't do this but at the same time that decision has to look like it makes sense or is necessary or has its own justification in the mind of the character. Oh my God, how do you do that? Like, <laughs> wow, that how do you do that? So I, it, it, that's an unanswerable question actually, mm. but I will answer it anyway because I'm a fiction writer. So you can take this for what it's worth. Yeah, I would say that, that, that it stems out of two things. So like you said, it has to feel true to the character. So first of all, it has to be something that character would do. You can't like just suddenly change their change their personality or change if they've been making one kind of decision up until now, then all of a sudden you have them make one that goes against everything else they did before just to serve the plot. But mm -hmm. if you kind of layered in that they tend to grab that cookie off the plate every time they see one, and then there's one that has poison in it, that they kind of think, that someone else has thought, said, well, what if that had poison in it? And then they grab it anyway, because they're just so hungry and it's a cookie, right? Then you yeah. kind of set it up to them personally. But, and then the other thing is just in terms of the setting and the world building, because I am just such a world building geek, or I would even say a world building dork, but it yeah. is that it has to go, it has to be true to the world and both that sense of internal consistency, but also the setting you're creating so <laughs> the, the, the bad example I always use is that the cartoon Mulan, at the end of it, she goes, she's taken to the palace and given an award, and then, the, and then she hugs the emperor. And I know yeah. it's a kid's cartoon, but it was just, the, I just, it was, it was so stupid. It would never happen. And it's, <laughs> to me, disrespectful as well to, to show that when it would never have happened. Um, mm -hmm. So... I think you can show people, and, and it's useful to show people making bad decisions when it's driven by what I already know of them and what I know of the world they're living in. And then, of course, maybe some plot situation. I'm desperate to get out, so I'm going to take door number one, even though I know there's a good chance there's a monster behind it. But if I stay here, something that worries me worse will happen. You know, so that, that's how I think it's best set up. So that, so that the reader says, no, don't, oh, of course they did, right? You want the reader to say, oh, of course they made that bad choice. So you basically engineered Patrick's anxiety. It's like, it's like artisanal yes. anxiety that you have. You're, yeah. Well done, well done. And, and, well, and I, will, I will throw it out there. The first time I told her that, she just went, <laughs> Exactly. I was about to say that. I was about to say that. In fact, the reader tears give us, give us strength and joy. Yeah. Mm, yeah. We we want to know. Yeah. We want to know that it worked. We want to know that the reader cried. We want to know that the you know that the reader shouted, you know, no, no, fuck you. Right? <laughs> I, I did that. There's a there's a moment in Ken Liu's so his his um Dandelion Dynasty. Yeah. Epic fantasy, which is four volumes. And there's a moment at the end of volume two where he just you can. Um, I, Ken's a good friend of mine. Um, and, and I told him, I said, 
oh my God, that moment I was like reading. And then, and then I was like, no, Ken's not going to do that. No, he's not going <gasps> to. I was, oh, I was so mad. I'm still mad, still mad. Um, yeah. be, and, but that to me is one of the great things about reading those moments combined with the moments where you go, yes, this was just what I wanted. Or the, the moments where you go, oh, wow, this is really beautiful. Or the moments where you go, oh, this is complex and dark, but I get it, right? There's just all those things. That, to me, is what makes reading. Well, when, yeah. when was Crown of Stars? That was like the 90s, late 90s? The first King's Dragon came out in 1997, and this volume seven came out in... I think early 2006. So and here we that, are in, in, in here we are in 2022 and mm -hmm. I'm still talking about it. <laughs> well, ex yeah, that's the other thing, right? That yeah. you want people to still think about your books. Yeah. It's a feature. Not that a and, and, uh, uh, Ted Williams's dragon bone chair was yeah. the other one that, that hit me at that time. And I was just yeah. like, oh, why, why, why are you doing this to me? Oh, I'm so curious to know because, of course, I read that. Yeah, I'm, I'm always so I guess I, I never know how spoilers can go with something that's like, <laughs> I, however, it's like 30 years old. But but yeah, um, I I love books that I still think about. I love yeah. books that I'm still mad about in that way. I mean, there are a few mm -hmm. books that I'm mad about in a different way, which is not a good way. You know. Oh, yeah. Eh, well, sure, I, so. in, in our last episode uh, for the picks of the week, I picked Willow, the new TV show from Disney Plus. Uh -huh. And I I have held on to this grudge for 30 years. There's there's a sequel book series to Willow. So Willow, the movie came out. Uh -huh. uh, Lucas couldn't get a sequel done. So he gave his notes to Chris Claremont, who wrote a trilogy of books that are supposed to be the direct sequel to Willow. Uh -huh. And they're god awful. And they're uh -huh. terrible. And they just, I wanted to scream. Like I have, I, I have, I have. I've joked about seeking out copies to destroy them. So no one else has to go through the same trauma that I've went through trying to read those. And so I brought that up in our last episode because we were talking about it, but it's like, I have hung on to that. I mean, I just, I'm sitting there going, Willow, here's Willow. Here's the movie. It's, it's, it's adventure. It's up. It's very, and then you get these, these three terrible, dark, weird books that don't even feel like they have anything whatsoever to do with that movie. And you're just sitting there going, what, why? And I've held on to that too. Well, strong, yeah, strong emotions stick with us, don't they? Yeah. If you Certainly read something do. that was a pleasant thing to read and um, the, the other day, two, two nights ago, after I got back from the big island, I watched a film and the next day, I was trying to remember what I had watched. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did remember eventually, but that's that was the problem, right? Yeah, because it yeah. wasn't. It just wasn't memorable. And boy, that is what we don't want as no. a creator. <laughs> no, that's bad. That uh, that's bad. So yeah. speaking of picks of the week, Tracy. Yeah, yeah. You feeling it? I am. I'm always feeling it. Picks of the week. All right. Uh, shall I start? Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, Shay Townsend show does. Done. Yeah. Why not? Um, so Shay Townsend over here. We do big time gaming all the time, as folks know. And I want to recommend a game that's been hitting the table pretty frequently over the last few days. It's called Libertalia. 
Libertalia is a set collection deck building sort of game. Um, not set collection, that's the wrong mechanic, but it's a deck building type of game uh, where you are essentially trying to outmaneuver other pirates uh, and other pirate crews in order to obtain booty and loot to take back to your crew and ultimately win the game. Um, like what makes Liberty? Huh? I think I've played this before. Was it a Kickstarter game? It, it was a Kickstarter game and it just came out in the last couple of months, like actually got released in the last couple of months. Um, we don't actually, we didn't kickstart it. Our friend George is lending us his copy of Libertalia. And the, the gimmick of Libertalia is you've got all these different types of pirates. There's a deck of um, 40 of them in total. And what happens is that you shuffle one deck uh, that's sort of like your, your master deck and you deal out six. And those six different cards are each numbered, and then everyone playing the game has to get those same six sailors out of their own deck. And so you know what cards everyone has with each hand, because as your deck evolves, you're all working from the same type of crew. And the crew members might be like a stowaway, or the bosun, or the cook, um, or... Um, a privateer or various different roles. And each one of them has a different kind of game breaking mechanic assigned to them where they can take a standard thing that you do in the game and force you to do it differently or force other people to do it differently. And so the trick of it becomes, you know that you have the same six sailors as everybody else playing this particular hand, but when are they going to play which ones? And some of them interact with each other in different ways. And you have incentives for wanting to play them at certain times and so on. Uh, and then over time, you begin to amass gold, and the gold is represented by just one of the coolest counters I've seen in a while. <laughs> Instead of doing like a scoring track thing, which is just standard issue mechanism of here's my pawn, I'm going to move it around this like extremely tiny track, everybody gets a treasure chest Um which is basically a double-layered um, cardboard guy that's got two wheels. And the two wheels look like the wheels of a combination lock, but what you're really doing is dialing in um, the amount of money that you have. Hmm. And so at the end of each hand, you count up the physical tokens you have, which are these extremely satisfying metal pieces. Um, and once you've done that, you get to put them back into the bank and dial in the amount that you have that just sticks around over there. And then the next hand, you do the same and so on and so on until eventually you accumulate your total amount of booty. Um, there's various other mechanics that I could get into, but we don't need to get that crunchy about it. It's a really good game to play um, either with people who aren't very confident in new games because although it may sound somewhat complicated from what I've just described, it teaches extremely quickly. And it's also very satisfying for people who are experienced at games because all those different card interactions and the way you randomize what crews you get means that it's never quite the same experience twice. Um, and so it's always possible to be outmaneuvered by someone who is just thinking differently about how to make those cards interact. Um, plays in about 30 minutes altogether, teaches in about five. And so if you're looking for something like that to plug a hole in your gaming repertoire, I suggest Libertalia. I, I can I, I that's yet. fascinating. I can I say something here? <laughs> I, um, I, one of the things that most fascinates me about the last, I don't know, few years is that people said that unions were dead and that tabletop and in-person gaming was dead. It was going to be all taken over by online gaming. And yet, here we are, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yet here we are with this resurgence in both those things, which I find um, to be great, but also I find it quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, um, it's it's a it's yeah. a tremendously vast field, and I think, you know. A lot of people, I think, who are outsiders to the world of tabletop gaming and and board gaming um, and so on, they think Dungeons and Dragons and they think Monopoly. And like outside of that, they don't have a lot of literacy, so to speak, in in what there is. But there are games that can cover all sorts of appetites for time investment and intellectual burn and, you know, literal investment of the money involved to acquire it. Um, and, you know, for us, a uh, number of years ago when our son was born, um, we kind of make the decision that we wanted to be able to have a hobby as a family that wouldn't involve us always finding a babysitter and sort of shoving him away. Mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure that we had a hobby that would be something that as the kids got older, they could do as well and that we could just invite people to our house. And so I now have a 15-year-old and an 11-year-old who are avid gamers and who saddle up to the table regularly with with adults. And uh, Patrick has endured their predations gaming when we uh, vacationed out in Colorado this last summer. And it's good times had by all. Yeah, my ki- my kids are all well. My kids are all adults, but they're all avid gamers. Uh, their mm-hmm. cousin. I'm 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 more of a I'm more of an outdoor tree climber person, so I don't really have the patience, but um, I, I did my best to raise them correctly as gamers. Well done. So, nice. Yeah, yeah. So my question is, in terms of, of the week, does it have to be something that I did this week, or can it no, be anything? No, no. Yeah, anything. something this recent, something something that's yeah. been on your mind. Um, I just think everyone should watch the Chinese historical drama Nirvana in Fire, which is 54 episodes and one of the best historical. Um, it, it has the pugilist aspect, so it has martial arts, but it's not quite wuxia in, in the same way. But it's an, an absolutely phenomenally well done political intrigue story it's not quite a revenge story it's a story about getting justice um, has fantastic performances about um, and it's about a, a man who is presumed dead who has to come back and get justice for his family he has to come back to the court to the emperor's court and get justice for his family while um, in in disguise and it's it's just it's so well written and it's so as a writer it's so well plotted because when you're doing 54 episodes it's easy to start repeating cycles yeah. you know the villain does this and it doesn't work so the villain does this and it doesn't work but in this one there's a build up to this one unbelievably incredible two two episode climax but that's halfway through and then it kind of flips over and then it starts building again from there. It's just, I, I, for me as a writer, I just watched this with the greatest enjoyment because I was so involved in it. And I just like to, I like to suggest that people, if they have the stamina to do a 54 episode, you know, all it's all one show, all one story with a lot of characters and you have to get like a character chart. It's helpful in the first like four or five episodes to get, to find online a character chart so you can keep some of the, figure out who the factions are. Um, but once you get about six in, then you begin to figure then, then you've got it right. If you get that far, I mean, not everybody's going to like it, but for me as a writer, I'm like, this 
is how it's done. This is how a big story is done. So yeah, that's, that's always, awesome. it's, yeah, it's called, it, the English translation is Nirvana and Fire. And nice. you, it can usually be found on Viki, I think. Okay, very cool. Thanks. Uh, Tracy, I think I played a different game. I will have to ask my friend, Jeremy, this pirate game does not include uh, a map where you're going around an island and you and you're having to fight battles with each other in your ships. And no, no, you ship. don't directly combat yeah. each other. Yeah. He, he had a completely different game that we played, I think. And I think it took longer than 30 minutes as well. Uh, my pick this week is actually a documentary uh, I saw on HBO Max and it's called The Automat. Hmm. And if you if you know what the automat is, you know. If you don't, you don't. But this was something that started in Philadelphia and was also very big in New York. And they were uh, these places where you could go and the walls had all the little windows on there. And you put a nickel in and you get a piece of pie or you get a piece of meatloaf or you get mm -hmm. mashed potatoes uh, you had the coffee coming out of the fancy vending machine uh, cafeteria. No, not even a vending machine. The coffee came out of a fancy uh, dolphin's head on the wall. You put a nickel in and you turned it and it would fill your, your coffee cup up. And then it was like a nickel coffee and they were huge and they were, they were a big part of uh, culture in New York and Philadelphia at the turn of the century. And they lasted until the sixties or seventies, at which point like the last one went away. They were part of Times Square. They were part of different places. And it was just, a, you know, people could go and it was, it was before there was fast food. Really. Right. So how it, it would was, they do? Were there people behind the wall yes. putting stuff in? Yes. And they, they actually had uh, uh, places where all the food was prepared. And then like uh, uh, they had like a, oh, I want to call it a warehouse, but that's not what it is. It, they, they basically had one place where all the food is prepared exactly the same to the standards of the owner who would come through and taste things and make sure everything tasted right. And everything would be made and then prepped on plates and then would be put into these things where you would put in your money and then you'd turn the button mm -hmm. and open the door and take your thing out. And yes, everything was prepackaged and, and it was all done ahead of time. And, uh, Part of who they talked to, they talked to Mel Brooks and they talked to Carl Reiner because both of them living and working in New York spent a ton of time at the Automat. Like that's what they were. And then it, they had seasonal foods as well. So they would have different things for, you know, Thanksgiving or the holidays than they would during the summer. And there was like certain pies that people would wait for. And it's just this history of the Automat. And what happened to it and how it got started and, and why it was in Philadelphia and New York and back and forth and tons of interviews. It was really, it was just really fun. It was just fun. You, they even had clips I, I'm sold. Movies. I'm sold. That's really Talk fun. about world know. building. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. They even had uh, clips from old movies where it was like, you know, when, when the person would get off the bus in, in New York, the first place they would be taken to was the automat for a hot meal kind of mm -hmm. thing. You know, how it's like, they, how do they keep out. it hot? I guess I have to watch. <laughs> yeah, you would. Uh, they had um, what uh, was it? Ed Koch, uh, like or someone? No, no, it was Jack Benny. Jack Benny uh, would do like things where he would bring celebrities there, and they would. They, it was like a big deal. Like you come to the automat and you sit down, you eat. 
<laughs> so it, it wow. it's just it's this wonderful documentary. And then they just keep using Mel Brooks, and Mel Brooks is like, "Who do you think is going to watch this?" Like. <laughs> It's the autumn. Like, why are you even doing this? Why are you filming this? Who's going to watch it? You think, ah, I'll write a song for you. We'll see if we can get someone to watch this thing. (laughs) It's just hilarious. Uh, So it's the automat and I saw it on HBO max. That's my, that's really cool. That's really really cool. (laughs) All right. Well, it has been a ball having you, Kate, and I'm really looking forward to The Keeper 6 coming out. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, listeners, definitely make sure that you keep an eye out for Keeper 6. Maybe put in a pre-order for it, and it will be ready for you on January 17th, coming from Tor.com. So, meantime, where can people find you and all your cool stuff on the etherwebs and other such places like? Well, I am still on Twitter, <laughs> um, we'll see how that goes. We are, uh, but I haven't. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't closed my account yet. Um, I am on Mastodon, although I don't really post there. I just grabbed some real estate. You can get my newsletter. So my website is kateelliot.com, and I also, which is not very up to date, um, and I have a blog called I Make Up Worlds. And on, from either of those, you can sign up for my newsletter, which is the best way to keep up because I do try to send out something every month. And I also send out when I have something to announce. So that's those are the best ways to get hold of me right now. And who knows what will happen in the future. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being with us, Kate. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. I really appreciate it. And, and, and Patrick, I'm still... Still, still glad that you cried. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I just sorry, not I still, sorry. I'm not sorry. Um, the one thing I can say about Crown of Stars, besides the fact that it's very long, um, but yeah. very, there's a lot of immersion there. If that's what you want, is that it does have a great, great villain. Yeah, I, and I started in paperback, and then I finished in hardcover. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. That's how you know you leveled up in someone's regard. Yeah, Yeah, because I when I first started uh, buying them, they were only in paperback. They didn't have the hardcovers. Hardcovers were gone at that point. So I I was buying the first couple in paperback. And then as the hardcover started coming out, I was one of was getting the hardcovers. Yeah. And I will note also that it is now five of the seven books are now out in audio book and the six and seven will be out next year. So that just started a year or two ago. The the audiobooks with a great narrator, Shiromi Arserio. So those are available from Tantor Media or wherever you get your audiobooks, if you like the audiobook thing. And Keeper 6 is also coming out in audio? It will. I I don't have anything. I don't have a link to announce for that yet. It's coming out with Servant Mage, which is the novella that came out early this year, which is a secondary world fantasy and is a true novella. It's like just under 40,000 words. And those two are coming out as a kind of a single volume. Nice. Yeah. Well, very in, cool. From Podium Audio in, I, I guess, um, in late January. Yeah. Very cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for coming on, and, and this was a lot of fun. Thank you again. Yeah, it was great. Well, here it is, the bumper. Wow. It's so spacious here. <laughs> yep. You can fit 60 whole seconds of additional information, advertisement, and suggestions in this baby. Advertisement? Sure. 
like our friends over at Beyond the Trope, which is perfect for people who like podcasts like ours with guests from the world of books, comics, gaming, and more. They have episodes every Tuesday, by the way. Huh. Patrick, are you just promoting Beyond the Trope out of fear and cowardice because of that time they attempted a coup of our podcast, powered by their insatiable lust for dominance? You mean our episode 538? No. Of course not. It's... Yeah, actually, it's definitely that. Oh, it's, it's... I feel you, brother. I live in fear as well. You know, if bumpers are good for additional information, this might be a good space for reminding our listeners that if they become supporting members of Worldcon, they can both nominate and vote for books, movies, television shows, and podcasts to win the Hugo Award in 2023. Yeah, it's a great way to contribute to the SF community and honor creators you like, maybe even the functional nerds, by nominating them for categories like Best Fancast. For example, in theory, you know, we could tell folks that interested listeners can go to the Chengdu Worldcon Facebook page for more information or, oh, um, straight to en.chengduworldcon.com to learn more. Do you think we could do that? I think we just did. Oh, yeah, you're right. Pumpers are really cool. I should stop by more often. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel! Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise! <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.